Welcome to PDBC's Tax Reform Readiness podcast series. This podcast is an excerpt from PDBC's Tax Reform Readiness webcast series held on May 2, 2018, focusing on interaction of the international provisions in the recent tax reform legislation. The panelists for the webcast were Ken Kuykendall, a PDBC tax partner and our tax services leader, Mike Erse, a PDBC tax partner and leader of our international tax services practice, Sherry Grabo, a PDBC tax partner focusing on international tax issues, and Marco Fiacadori, a PDBC tax partner focusing on transfer pricing issues. This excerpt consists of a discussion among the panelists, providing a general overview of the BEAT provision and the interaction of that with other new international provisions. Take a listen. With that, why don't we move over into talking about the next area, which would be BEAT and some of the interactions there. Marco, I'm going to come back to you. Yeah, so really where what where we are covering today is guilty and beat boomerang which is the interplay um, that guilty has and somewhat unexpected and you know somewhat challenging from a policy perspective with respect to the beat calculation so we don't intend to cover beat overall uh, but here it's a good slide that put um, you know illustrates really the concept of boomerang what is boomerang here is really a situation where you don't have effectively uh, an extra liability coming into play as a result of guilty. We have set up the examples so that if, you know, through the use of FTCs attaching to guilty, uh, the taxpayer really don't have an incremental guilty tax. And so you can see on the left column, uh, the tax liability of 21, this is, um, you know, before the guilty and beat calculation, uh, really doesn't uh, raise as a result of guilty because of that use of FTC. But as a result of the mechanics of beat, and again, some of the taxpayers may not be subject to beat, but as an applicable taxpayer, if there is actual beat um, uh, potential exposure, then the beat kicks in, and the beat itself, the calculations do not allow the use of foreign tax credit that attach to the guilty, although they include the guilty amount as part of the modified taxable income. That means that effectively, um, you know, whether intended or not, the calculations in, induce a higher minimum tax uh, because the included amount of guilty and the inability to offset it by the use of foreign tax credit. So here the boomer is really the fact that you really think you have solved the guilty issue by you know properly um, you know um, working with the use of FTCs and yet because of it uh, you undo that that sort of um, work and effectively being uh, topped up uh, to match the 10 percent of modified uh, taxable income. So. Um, Mike, I don't know if you have... Yeah, I was just going to say that, um, you know, this this effect is most pronounced when you have very large multinationals that have significant foreign operations. So when the U.S. income is maybe half or less of the total worldwide income, and particularly in industries where it's cyclical, if, you, if your U.S. group has a bad year, this can really boomerang on you because the foreign guilty is so large vis-a-vis -vis your U.S. income that your regular tax isn't big enough to overcome the minimum tax. So I, I don't know how they could have thought this was intended. But. <laughs> Again, it's, just, it's an odd result in the fact that you've satisfied not having a guilty obligation by sheltering it with foreign tax credits, but yet the use of those credits comes back and causes you a beat inclusion. Again, the numbers have to work right, Mike, to your point. The inclusion has to be something to get you past that 10% um, tax threshold, but, but it really produces an unintended result here. All right. 
Mike, I'm going to come to you. How about if we get into the interest expense limitations and some of those interactions? Yeah, I, I would just start overall and say that because we did get EBITDA for the first five years, um, a lot of companies are okay under this calculation. Um, I think in two, you know when that runs out, when we go back to EBIT, it um, it's going to affect a lot more people. But in this example, we actually are limited. So if you look at net interest expense line three, $240, that's essentially the net amount of interest you paid. Um, but when you run through the ATI example and take it at 30%, the limit's 160. So there's um, not enough interest expense limitation to deduct all 240. So um, I think the, um, the most important thing to, to get away from this slide is that uh, any a disallowed expense is carried over. So for book purposes, I think many people will book the deferred tax asset. D depends on the particular client. I, I always worry when Mike goes down the path of accounting for income taxes. <laughs> but Listen, I think, I think it, you got to go through recoverability. You have to model. Um, yep. But unlike guilty, where the credits just die in that basket, yeah. this is an attribute that you at least have a chance to get in the future. Uh, but if, if we keep going on the next slide, I think, um, as Sherry said, we just don't know if 163J is going to apply at the CFC level, and that certainly interacts with guilty. Uh, it affects how much uh, tested income you'd have. That's all this slide is really trying to show. And then on the next slide, um, the 163J limitation affects all the baskets because if you have a limitation, Obviously, you only allocate in a portion interest that is deductible, and so in this case, whatever those red numbers add up to, that was the deductible amount after applying 163J limitation. Um, so obviously, all these things interact, and, and as I think you said, um, people are evaluating where their debt is. Um, that is not purely a, a tax question. Uh, it's certainly a matter of cost of borrowing what currency you want to borrow in, what uh, capacity to borrow your CFCs have, and obviously what this limitation is doing to you in your U.S. tax return. So it's all interrelated, and as you model out different scenarios, it can get complicated because obviously interest expense affects so many of these uh, modules. Yeah, one of the interesting things for me, and we had a prior um, tax reform readiness webcast talking about this, is... Um, how much I expected Treasury to be involved in some of this, and I think how much is still to be done around Treasury getting involved in some of these pieces. I mean, you think about the amount of um, cash that is now available, mandatory deemed repatriation going over. You think about the interest limitation rules kicking in now, and as you said, getting more onerous down the road from, from a standpoint of uh, the deductions. The benefit of a deduction going from 35% to 21%, um, I would think there'd be sort of an active effort to, to rethink that. And, and most of the polling question responses coming in would suggest there's sort of an active effort to look at debt there. But that, that critical linkage between tax and treasury, it's, it's on in some places, but it's not on as many places as, as I would expect. And so one of the takeaways I would think for our audience is engage with treasury and try and pull them in because th there is some sizable work to be done in this space around rethinking what the debt structure looks like. Yeah, and corporate debt, actually, interestingly, the issuance, if you look at some of those uh, uh, fact patterns, you know, offshore cash that now is present in the U.S. have really dried up. So if you look at the data, you start seeing, you know, first quarter pretty, 
pretty dry um, corporate bond issuance as possibly a result of this interplay. Yeah, I mean, I would say the uh, the, the other reason to engage with Treasury is really about PTI. Most yeah, um, most C-suite folks believe um, we can just get our cash like this, and all the tax folks are obviously understand that <laughs> we have withholding taxes, we have other kinds of constraints, um, and so. Engaging with Treasury is a great idea on both of these issues. Yeah, great points. All right, so that'll take us to our third polling question, which is, do you expect to be limited by 163J? And if so, um, how are you responding to that? Mike, while people are responding to this one, um, I want to come back to a question that, Sherry, you hit on, Mike, you hit on slightly, but no one's sort of gone down the tunnel here for people, and that is, if we really do have to look at 163J on a CFC by CFC level. What are some of the issues people are really going to face in that space, and, and how far down does that spiral go? Well, the first thing you got to do is um, remodel all your guilty calcs because you need to understand everybody that has interest expense, whether it's fully deductible for tested income purposes. Yeah. Um, the second thing, and as Sherry's Sherry's, point, you may have some entities that just don't have income. Exactly. To yeah. You know, we think there'll be if that if that's where the rules go, we think there will have to be a lot of restructuring because yeah. um, when you look at how uh, U.S. multinationals finance their operations, most of the debt is in the U.S. But to the extent they borrow, let's say in euro, oftentimes it is at the holding company level because the at the assets of that holding company support have the collateral to support that, that local borrowing. And as Sherry said, they often don't have any real active income, which would qualify under 163J. So people would either have to check boxes or move their debt. Um, and again, that means getting involved with Treasury and is there are there costs to get out of debt? Are there better interest rates elsewhere? Do they want to be in certain currencies? to hedge uh, their operational footprint. Yeah. So. It, would, it would take that Rubik's Cube we're talking about and make it like four-dimensional to try and sort that out, huh? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> All right, Mike, bring us back out. Give us the bigger picture now. Okay, so this intricate slide, which looks like an engine, um, <laughs> is supposed to illustrate that you cannot do your planning simply by looking at U.S. tax reform. Certainly, it's central to where people are spending their time today. We have a toll charge that's due October 15th for our calendar clients, and so people are working hard already on that. Um, we're in the middle of the guilty year and the beat year for most people, um, except some of our fiscal clients. Um, but as you think about how guilty is affecting you or beat, whether you have an interest limitation, um, and what you're going to do about bringing home all your PTI, you have to think holistically about what's going on in the rest of the world. And, and it's, it's almost like a perfect storm. We have a lot of things happening, and they're going to be happening in, in 2018 and 2019. So just a, if I point out six cogs on this slide, um, things I would watch out for, um, the multilateral instrument on the left. That has been adopted by many, many countries. It will affect, potentially, whether withholding is applied on distributions 
back to the U.S. And we're trying to get our PTI home, which you cannot get a credit on, presumably, um, or it's subject to a haircut. It depends on which pool you're pulling from. Um, you don't want to pay a lot of withholding tax. Um, it doesn't make sense in an exemption system. Uh, state aid is a, another issue that every U.S. multinational, every European multinational needs to pay attention to as they think about restructuring and whether anything they're doing is anywhere close to some of the cases that have already been brought. Um, ATAD I'm going to talk about in a minute. It is a huge issue uh, for our client base. Uh, transparency dis and disclosure. Uh, everybody's got country-by-country country reporting, but there's also new EU reporting disclosure requirements that will start as early as this summer, um, which, again, goes to whatever you're doing, let's you know, align it with your business transactions so um, when you step back and you disclose to the world what you're doing, it all makes business sense. Um, unilateral actions is another cog on this wheel that uh, you've already seen actions by some of the Commonwealth countries, but we're still expecting Germany potentially to issue anti-hybrid rules, and um, I would expect something out of Canada. And last, the digital economy, um, and this is not just for the West Coast. This is for pretty much everybody who uses a website to sell their products or services. Uh, the Europeans in particular are looking at a, a turnover tax uh, or a DPE. And it's just something you have to keep a close eye on so that you can um, minimize the impact of that. But if we keep going, I'm going to dig into ATAD. Um, we put this timeline on here, and I'm only going to talk really about two of these boxes. The 2019 box, I, I'd say one of the most important things to think about as you're looking at your global structure, uh, first of all, a number of companies are looking at simplifying things and flattening their structures. Uh, you know, foreign tax credit planning isn't the same as it was in 2017. Uh, so having lots of entities with high and low income are, are a lot less important. Um, and lots of tiers of companies, to me, only adds complexity and potential risk under the MLI. So, uh, but, but as you think about a restructuring of your global group, you also have to keep in mind CFC rules that are being ad adopted in Europe. And they're being adopted by 1119. And two countries in particular that, that are going to be adopting new rules are Holland and Luxembourg. And those are common holding company structures of U.S. and, and non-U.S. So we have to keep an eye on those rules. Plus, uh, much of Europe is adopting uh, new 30% interest deduction rules. Uh, many already had it, but uh, more will adopt that. And then in 2020, a year later, we have even more rules coming, mainly around the anti-hybrid rules. And so anybody who's got debt between related parties is going to have to make sure that those uh, debt structures are compliant. And so when you step back and you say, well, where's my debt? around the world, 
if you're going to put debt in Europe, you have to understand interest deductibility rules that are coming into the EU. Uh, you have to understand our 163J limit. You want to know how that's affecting your guilty income. Um, and that obviously affects BEAT. And all of that affects your foreign tax credit baskets. So it's all interrelated. And it's just something that you have to look at holistically. Mike, I think you made some great points here digging into um, the global side of this. We, t we talk so much around what's happening domestically. And then you look at all those pieces coming. You look at that ATAD timeline and what's happening. There, there's just a lot of considerations to factor in that you have virtually no control over what's going to happen in some of those places and you're going to have to react to. I mean, to me, that's, that's a big takeaway to, to add into the equation. Yeah, the, if, if you really think about our U.S. client base, um, for the last eight months, they've been just so super focused on U.S. tax reform. Yes. Meanwhile, the Europeans have been, you know, continuing to implement ATAD 1, ATAD 2, um, they've certainly taken a hard line on the state aid cases, yeah. and all the MLI treaty participants have happened, um, and you've got countries making unilateral act action. So it's, it's time, it, as, as busy as we all are this summer, this spring and summer, with a lot of the calculations that are required by tax reform, it's also a time to really have, um, I think it's an 18-month plan on... Yeah. How am I going to get my $3 billion of PTI home? How, do I have debt structures that are going to fail on January 1st? Do I have my debt in the right country yeah. based on the limitations? Um, do I have a problem with my substance in, in where I earn my... Uh, do do I, I have my intellectual property in the locations that exactly. I, I want to have it in based upon the Marco discussion? There's exactly. just a lot of things to think about. And again, it's not just through U.S. lens. It's, it's looking at all these other pieces, too. That's yeah, right. And the other thing I think, it, it, you know, the governance, it's, you know, taxes is not only at play, right? So it brings the tax department, in, it requires the tax department to really have a conversation with the finance department, and generally with business. I think, I think yeah. it changes a little bit the dynamics also internally, um, you know, on, on how the relevant uh, stakeholders are really, you know, looking at this. Yeah, it definitely has raised the, the relevance of tax within the organization with all the things that are going on and forced relationships that may not have otherwise been there in some cases. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like further information about this topic, please email the participants whose email addresses can be found in the description of this episode.